first, the uh, relationship between Obama and Biden has often been cast as a bromance, but they're almost two decades of working together as president and veep was far more complicated and less cosy than that. There were, sometimes still are, tensions about style and about who should claim credit. And now that uh, Biden is in charge, about whose legacy will prevail. All this and more in a book called The Long Alliance, The Imperfect Union of Joe Biden and Barack Obama. And the author has the wonderfully musical name of Gabriel de Benedetti. Gabriel is national correspondent for New York magazine and before that covered Democrat politics for Politico and for Reuters. Uh, Welcome and Biden chasing the presidency. I guess a, a very good example of just how complicated the relationship has been is a relatively recent one. In 2020, when Biden was seeking election as the presidential candidate and Obama for so long in the spotlight was trying to lay low, take us to Obama's home on Martha's Vineyard and what he was weighing up. Well, first, thank you so much for having me on, but you have set this up, this relationship up perfectly. The summer of 2020 was a very complicated time for the two of them. Uh, Once Biden had already become the Democratic nominee, with some help from Obama, which we can certainly speak about. But this was all behind the scenes. The two of them were speaking on occasion. But what Obama was doing was talking more with Biden's advisors, recognizing that Biden didn't necessarily want to hear too much from them because of the way that the 2020 election had been set up to begin with. Uh, In the early days of the 2020 election, when Biden was simply the leading primary candidate, but not, of course, the nominee, uh, Obama was agnostic at best, as to whether Biden should run and certainly whether he should support him. Obama made very clear to Biden that he didn't think he had to run this time. And Obama, in fact, offered advice to quite a few candidates who were running against Biden. Uh, Biden didn't particularly appreciate this, but he never said so to Obama. It was simply a tense point for them because, of course, at that point, they had already shared eight years together and their presidency had ended, it's important to remember, uh, in joint defeat, of course, with, with Donald Trump taking over. And at that point, uh, Obama had just, in fact, supported Hillary Clinton over Joe Biden. So things were raw. But in the (laughs) summer of 2020, when Obama is watching this all from afar, he is, of course, supportive of Biden. And he essentially decides in the closing days of the campaign for the presidency that he and Biden should stop speaking for for public image's sake, after being so helpful behind the scenes as a campaigner and as an advice giver, and that, in fact, he should wait until the votes are counted before he says anything to Biden, basically hoping that by doing so, since they knew that Trump would likely claim victory no matter what happened, that there wouldn't be any uh, stink of impropriety no matter what. And as such, they sort of cut off conversation late in the campaign uh, and waited for the votes to be counted in what was arguably one of the most tense moments of their joint time together because it was when one and both of their legacies were going to be determined by the result of the 2020 election. So initially, Obama had tried to talk Biden out of out of running and he's got this open door policy to other candidates So, and quite a few of them impressed him. 
That's right. That's exactly right. Initially, it's important to remember it feels like ancient history now, but just about everyone who was a Democratic elected official thought, well, maybe I can run for president. Uh, you know, At some point, some of the informal lists had up to four dozen names on it. And Biden uh, was watching closely because he, of course, thought he should be the obvious candidate here. But Obama wasn't convinced. And Obama said, why don't others come and you know give me their pitch and ask for advice if they want it? So a, a procession of them went by his office in Washington and some in Martha's Vineyard for these conversations with him. Um, and he was, in fact, impressed with quite a few of them, uh, included Beto O'Rourke, the Texas congressman who had nearly become a senator, who Obama thought captured some of the kind of surprising youthful inspiration that Obama had in 2008. He was impressed with Pete Buttigieg for similar reasons, but was skeptical that Buttigieg would be able to convince people that he was old enough or mature enough or, in fact, tall enough to run for president <laughs> successfully. Um, and then throughout the campaign, a number of other people caught Obama's attention. There was Ex Kamala forgive Harris. me for interrupting, but I understand he, he even gave a diagonal nod to Elizabeth Warren. Elizabeth Warren and he had a very interesting relationship. They uh, had not really gotten along extremely well during Obama's time in office because he felt that Warren was quite a critic from the inside, inside of the party and at some points inside of the administration itself. But he came to believe that Warren was by far one of the smartest uh, people running for office and also that she really had an impressive ability to get her point across. It helped, of course, that Obama's own daughters were very supportive of Warren and told him as much. Uh, but what he wasn't sure was how she was going to be able to win over working class voters or voters of color. And he said as much to her. And of course, that was a major problem for her during the campaign, ultimately. But he was impressed with her, even though he was skeptical of the idea that she could actually win. And of course, his politics were not quite as far left as hers. And of course, Obama was not impressed with Biden's campaign advisors. He said, uh, they're not an A-team. <laughs> That's right. Uh, Obama and Biden had kept in touch in the early days of the 2020, before 2020. And, and Obama had said to Biden, you know, you really don't need to do this, as I mentioned. But Biden essentially said to Obama, you know, sorry, Trump is in office. I need to do it if I can. And Obama at one point finally said, OK, well, if you're really going to do this, Joe, then tell me about who is going to be involved. Let's see if I can help a little bit just a little bit. And Biden, you know, one important piece of context is that Biden has, and to this day, this is still true, has essentially had the same group of five, 10 people around him for coming on 40 years now in some cases. And so when Biden said to Obama, these are the people that are going to be running my operation, no surprise to anyone, but Obama was not impressed. Obama essentially thought, well, Biden hasn't run his own successful campaign ever, and there's no evidence that these people can run a modern campaign. Im important to remember that Obama and Biden had run against each other in 2008 and that, in fact, Biden had run a terrible campaign in 2008, and that was the last time Obama had seen him run a campaign. So he thought, well, why won't this just be a redux of that? But, of course, uh, Joe stubbornly plows ahead. He's absolutely yeah. convinced he was the only Democrat with a, well, a pre-cemented reputation strong enough to uh, tackle Trump. That's right. Biden was – it's easy to argue that Biden was right, in fact, that Trump's superpower was taking people who did not have a cemented opinion of them in the public eye uh, and, and creating a new reputation for them. He, you saw him do that against Republicans very frequently. And of course, Biden saw this large field of people running against him and said, 
these people are not famous enough. These people are not well-known enough. Trump is going to rip them apart. But Biden, of course, was very famous. He'd been in the public eye for 40, 50 years at that point. And he thought, I'm the one who people trust, who can be a steady hand and who is an obvious alternative here. And it's hard to argue with that, with that analysis at this point when you look back on this. And of course, Biden was famous and quite beloved as what's been called the designated mourner. So Along comes COVID, the need for national leadership, and that must have helped Biden. Absolutely. It wasn't immediately obvious that that was going to help him. You know, once he became the nominee as COVID comes comes down, you know, you may recall he was stuck essentially at home in Wilmington and Trump got the vast majority of attention. So there was a, a, a very significant line of conversation, a line of argument that said, you know, Biden is hiding in his basement. He's not doing enough. And it was very difficult. They didn't want, of course, to hold rallies and or, or to expose Biden to the virus. So he was stuck at home like the rest of us were while Trump was on camera for two hours a day, you know, recklessly uh, exposing himself, but also of course to the virus, but also, of course, um, you know, talking about COVID and, and the terms that he did that that terrified a lot of people. So Biden was really trying to present himself during that time as the voice of responsibility. So Biden's in the basement. What about Bernie Sanders? He was, I guess, the last candidate standing. Be, uh, and Obama. Right. What did Obama think of Sanders? Obama was very skeptical of Sanders and didn't really understand him even back in 2016 when he ran against Hillary Clinton. But Obama had come to uh, really respect Sanders in the intervening years and see that while they didn't agree on politics at all, uh, they agreed at least on the the broadest terms, you know, the liberal policy goals. And Obama certainly respected the ability that Bernie had to uh, create a movement, especially among young people. Obama's daughters had also been fans of Sanders, and that helped him appreciate him a little bit more. More. They'd gotten to know each other a bit, but by the end of the 2020 primary, Obama was quite clear that he didn't think Sanders could beat Trump, and as a result, did help Biden get across the line by convincing other candidates uh, to drop out. Gabriel, this is the first time I've heard that uh, Obama's daughters were kingmakers. <laughs> I, perhaps I'm overstating it slightly, but it does. It is important to know with both of these men that they are family men, and they do really listen to the people in their family. Obama has talked openly with friends since this time about how he did struggle to understand Sanders in particular and really didn't get the appeal among young people. So when he saw his own daughters open to him, it did cause him to take a second look and say, oh, perhaps there's more here than I really thought. The vast appeal that Sanders had among young people is something that other Democrats have really struggled to try and replicate. Obviously, Democrats are still the party of younger voters, but Sanders is someone who has managed to inspire them in vast numbers. And of course, Biden saw this and realized that he needed help in this respect. And so closing the primary out in 2020 was not it was no easy task. Obama needed to help him actually in winning over Sanders, convincing Sanders to drop out, and then getting Sanders' voters on his side. So Obama belatedly uh, decides to back Biden and right. uh, gets busy behind the scenes. That's right. He, uh, during the closing days of the campaign, determines that Biden needs to win and convinces Pete, calls Pete Buttigieg, calls Amy Klobuchar, who are two of the other remaining candidates, and essentially argues to them, though not in these explicit terms, but in fairly obvious terms, you need to think about your legacy. You need to think about what the future of the party is. The upshot to them is clear that they should drop out, endorse Joe Biden, and 
end the primary right then and there. And that's effectively what happened. Uh, Biden didn't like the idea that Obama was ending the primary for him or handing it to him because, of course, he thought he had done this on his own. Uh, But Obama, to him, it was fairly clear what role he was playing. And very quickly, he starts to plug in with a number of Biden's top advisors, who are, of course, in many cases, his former advisors. So here's Trump, the titan of Twitter, and uh, Obama gets some of his aides to help with digital strategies. He not only gets his aides to help with digital strategies, this is the thing that he is primarily focused on for a long time. He convinces one of his aides to help convene a panel of uh, tech titans to talk to the Biden team and offer them advice. And almost immediately, their, the Biden team agrees to quintuple their digital budget, essentially making the calculus that during this era, when we are all stuck in uh, inside during the COVID time, of course, this is March, April, May of 2020, this is the only way that people are going to communicate digitally. So by Obama is essentially the one who says to the Biden team, of course, they knew that they needed to have a strong digital presence, but Obama is behind the scenes saying, you really need to step it up all along. Now, the Iowa caucuses have historically been the first held in the in the US. So let's go back to the difficulties or perhaps the challenges for the pair's relationship, which begin in 2008 when Obama trounced Biden. That's right. They had known each other in the Senate leading up to this point when Biden was an old leader of the Senate, particularly of the Foreign Relations Committee, and and Obama was an up-and-comer. But they didn't have much of a relationship because there was no real reason for them to have much of a relationship. They were uh, they were certainly able to work together, but they weren't really impressed with one another. At the same time, you then get to Iowa, you get to the campaign trail, and it's Obama who is absolutely far and away the frontrunner, who's the interesting person on the trail, and Biden is essentially an afterthought. Biden has to drop out of the race after almost no campaigning whatsoever because it's very clear to him in the Iowa caucuses that when you get 1% of the vote, that doesn't translate to becoming president. But Obama is the supernova, politically speaking. You've got so many revelations in this. Uh, Biden has suggested Obama might not even run for president, but he'd be a good number two. (laughs) That's right. That's how they were thinking of each other at the time. It's important to remember that Biden had run for president in 1988. Biden had been running for president, in fact, before Obama had even gotten to law school. So the idea that uh, Obama was the next president to Biden, an old institutionalist, was crazy. And so at the time he was thinking, this guy can be a governor one day, maybe. This guy can be vice president, perhaps. But the idea that Obama was going to be the president in 2008 was totally foreign to to Biden. And he said as much. Um, He attacked him during the campaign for not having enough experience, which of course was the same attack that Hillary Clinton, who was the other front runner, was making against Obama. But clearly it didn't work very well. Gabriel, Biden must have uh, found the fuss about Obama rather unfair. Not only unfair, he thought it was ridiculous. Uh, I mean, he didn't say it in those specific terms, but he at times was offended because people would say to him on the campaign trail, well, you were the Obama in 1988 when you ran for president for the first time. And Biden was conflicted about this. He thought that it was true, of course, that he had a lot of buzz, that he had a lot of interest. 
at the same time, he made the point, yes, but when I ran in 1988, I had already been in the Senate for 15 years. Obama had barely been in the Senate at all. So he was not so much personally offended as shocked that the entire political environment had such a short history and that people were falling over themselves. Of course, Obama was wildly inspirational, a historic candidate. And for him, the idea of even thinking about Biden, well, why would he? He had bigger things to think about. Now, we'll look at the uh, his choice of Biden as uh as his vice presidential candidate in some detail, but I hadn't realised what you describe as the animosity between Clinton and Obama. The 2008 campaign, that primary campaign, was very vicious at times with lots, particularly at the staff level and, and certainly at the supporter level. At one point, a number of Clinton supporters even essentially suggested that they would not vote for Obama if he became the nominee. Obviously, that's not come to pass. But the two truly came to dislike each other during the course of that campaign, which was a surprise because, of course, they had gotten along during their short shared time in the Senate. Um, but because that campaign dragged on and because it was so vicious, it was quite a surprise to people the way that it ended rather abruptly with Obama uh, becoming the nominee. It took a lot of time for him to bring the party back together. And at that point, you know, in this is deep into 2008, uh, Joe Biden was a complete afterthought. Now, let's look at the reasons, the motivations behind Obama's choice of Biden as he's a VIP sure. candidate. I suppose it makes all sorts of sense. There's, the, for example, the generational dimension and also the skin colour. Both of those were massive, massive things. One of the first things that the, Ob that the Obama team articulated after doing a round of polling and focus groups and talking about basically conventional wisdom politically, uh, the, the political wisdom was essentially we need someone with, and this was a literal concern, we need someone with literal gray hair to join the ticket, to send the message of experience, but all, not only in Washington, but also abroad. Biden had both of those things. As to the political concern, there was a major concern in the United States at the time that people simply wouldn't vote for the first uh, black nominee for, for president, that he would not – that despite the polling lead that Obama had at the time, there was a real concern that the country was simply too racist to seriously consider him. And Biden was thus seen as a safe, older, white man, moderate, who would be able to uh, allay a lot of those concerns among voters who didn't necessarily say this out loud, but were worried about it. This is how the Obama team was thinking about it at the time. Um, Biden was not a political dynamo, but he has, was obviously experienced and was obviously someone who should be taken seriously as a candidate for vice president. Gabriel, before he uh, chose Biden, who else did he consider? There was a long list of people who he considered, but he essentially narrowed it down fairly quickly to a final three. Biden was always on the list, even though they hadn't really gotten along, uh, but he was a politically obvious person to consider. There was an Indiana senator named Evan Bayh, who had been a governor, who was from a state that was fairly conservative, very conventional politician, nothing all that surprising about him. And then there was the third, the person that Obama eventually thought very seriously about, who was the Virginia governor, Tim Kaine, who people might remember as then Senator Tim Kaine, who then became, of course, Hillary Clinton's running mate eight years later. But at the time, he was seen as this young liberal change maker, much like Obama was. Very quickly, though, the conventional wisdom was, you're going to pick Joe Biden. Even to the point where Obama asked another candidate, another former presidential candidate, Bill Richardson, to be considered 
we know whether he would be, he would agree to be vetted for the job. And Richardson responded to Obama at the time, why even bother? We all know you're going to choose Joe. But Obama didn't see it that way. And Obama actually went through the process with by uh, with by Kane and Biden to interview them all to go through the full background checks and the vetting. And by was a good option, a decent option. But Kane was the one that Obama kept coming back to. And at one point in his conversations, Kane essentially says, you know, uh, Barack, I don't know if you should choose me. We're too similar. There was an argument that politically speaking, their appeals were too similar at the time. And Obama said to Kane, well, Tim, here's the thing. You were the choice of my heart and Joe is the choice of my head. And sometimes I go with my heart and sometimes I go with my head. Tell us about the positives of their relationship, Gabriel. What I think worked? at this point, at this point, it's certainly fair to say that it is the closest relationship between a president and vice president, and certainly between a president and former president, that we've had in modern history. We've gone through some of the complications, and um, there are 400 pages worth of them to talk about if we want to. But what did work is that these were two men who very quickly understood each other, and their families, they, they understood each other as family men. Their families got along very quickly. And they also came to have a very uh, powerful agreement early on, where Obama essentially said to Biden, I know you've been around for a very long time. I'm going to need your help. This is not going to be an ego game between us. And Biden was willing to uh, follow along with that. And by the end of their time together, Biden calculated at one point that they had spent roughly seven hours a day together for eight years. So when you spend that much time with someone and you broadly agree on things and respect them, of course, it's going to be a close relationship. He wanted to be differential without debasing himself. That's right. It was not always obvious that this was going to work. Biden had seen many examples of presidents and vice presidents uh, over his time in Washington, even to that point, and not many of them had a very good relationship at all. Uh, you, all you had to do was look back at the Bush-Cheney relationship, which had just ended essentially in flames. The two were barely speaking by the end of their time together. So – Oh, Biden and, of course, said, back to Reagan and George H.W. Bush. There are more examples than there are to the contrary. In fact, it was surprising that Biden thought that this was going to work out because he essentially – what he did was he talked to Walter Mondale, uh, who had been Jimmy Carter's vice president and a successful one at that, even if the Carter presidency did not exactly end in glory. Um, and he asked, why did, it, why did it succeed? What did you do well? And Carter uh, – or, or Mondale rather – said to Biden and Biden's aide, here are the things that you need to ask Obama to promise you. You need to have a weekly lunch. You need to have access to every piece of paper that crosses his desk. Uh, and you need to make sure that you're the last person in the room for every big decision that he makes. And Biden presented this to Obama, and he was very surprised when Obama said, sure, that all sounds good to me. It didn't always work out that way, but that was the foundational understanding. Now, the I, other I'd forgotten that Biden was so strongly opposed to Obama's uh, health care reforms or planned reforms, his most uh, cherished uh, initiative. In fact, it was known, but not extremely widely known at the time, but it's true. The, essentially, the argument that Biden made to Obama in the early days, the earliest days of the administration was the economy is falling apart. We're going to need to focus on that. The American people want to see us focusing on the economy. And people have been trying to reform the healthcare system for a century. And usually what happens is the person who tries to do it 
fails and pays a political price for it. This is the argument that Biden made fairly vociferously, not just to Obama, but to everyone who would listen within the White House in the early days of 2009. So Biden you know, came along eventually, but it took some time for him to be persuaded that this was actually a good idea and that they wouldn't have their entire legacy bogged down. One of the most gobsmacking things in your book is you say the Obamas never invited the Bidens to the White House residence. They simply did not see their friendship that way. And that's one of the things that I think a lot of people still don't understand about the relationship, though this book is hopefully changing the perception. Uh, Biden and Obama spent a, t- a lot of time together, but they saw each other as work friends first and foremost for the vast majority of their time together. Obama had a real antipathy towards the kind of socializing that a lot of people think is necessary to be a successful politician in Washington. And Biden was very good at it. But what Obama didn't want to do was bring work home. So he never invited politicians up to his up to the residency in the White House. And he saw Biden as a politician. Similarly, both men are avid golfers. How many times did they golf together while in office? I can count the number on one hand. Okay, so from uh, the past to the future, what's your? Will he run again? Will Joe run again? He certainly believes that he will, and I'm inclined to believe that. Although what he always says is he always leaves a caveat. He says, unless my health gets in the way, unless something else changes. The only thing that could change, other than his health, is if Donald Trump decides not to run again or for so, or is forced not to run again for some reason. Biden still believes that he is the right person, that he's been doing a good job, and that he should, by all rights, be able to run again, that he still can. But he also thinks that he's the only person that can stop Trump from reclaiming the presidency. Uh, The important thing to remember with Biden is that he's been thinking about the presidency since the 1970s. So it doesn't really jibe to think he woke, he'll wake up one morning and think, you know, I've been president for four years. That's enough for me. This is, a, this is something he's been pursuing for the vast majority of his adult life. What's your prediction for the midterms? It seems likely that Democrats will lose the House. With a, That's certainly where the trajectory is, though it may be a close margin. And I think that the Senate is genuinely a toss-up right now. All of this is good news for Biden, of course, because the expectation is something much closer to the shellacking, as, as Obama called it, that he faced in 2010, where the president's party loses a lot of seats. Well, week by week, we've been able to observe the, uh, the Biden bounce back. It's been quite impressive. It has, and he's been really enjoying it. One thing that he has been talking about a lot these days, or rather thinking about a lot, though he doesn't talk about it much out loud, is the comparison uh, between his legacy, what he's been able to accomplish, and Obama's. For a long time, it was a grim conversation for him because it doesn't look like a lot was getting passed, and certainly Republicans were getting in his way uh, at every turn. But now he feels that he has quite the legacy to stand on. Now, finally, how are they getting on these days? They still talk on occasion, every few weeks, but their conversations are personal. They're not really political advice. They're not really policy advice. One person described them to me once as political therapy. But you can tell that they're very important conversations for both of them because no one else is on the line. There are no aides on the line, which is an absolute rarity for the president. And you can tell, according to people close to him in particular, that after he gets off the phone with Obama, it's been a special call, no matter what they talked about. It's as if they're the only two people, they think, who can truly understand what they've gone through. So it is a special relationship, even if it isn't always been the most pleasant one. Look, thanks for your time. That was quite exhilarating. I've been talking to Gabriel De Benedetti, national correspondent for New York magazine. He's the author of The Long Alliance. 
alliance, the imperfect union of Joe Biden and Barack Obama, just out here from Scribe. G'day, potties. As you know, we love a philosophical discussion here at Early Nell, but for a different take on the big ethical issues in modern life, try the minefield with Waleed Ali and Scott Stevens. They may even mention Hannah Arendt. Find it on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> 